0: In this episode of 92Y Talks, legendary actor Nick Nolte discusses his career spanning five decades and hundreds of roles in his new memoir, Rebel, by Life Outside the Lines, with Real Pieces moderator Annette Insdorf. The conversation was recorded on March 12, 2018, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Welcome to Nick Nolte. And I'm going to ask that we raise the house lights just a little bit because we can't see you very well. And I think now it's a bit better. I want, uh, yeah, Oh, now it's much better. I want you to see that this is your audience. So, um, you just said backstage that the scene we showed from Rich Man, Poor Man was your audition?
1: Yeah, that was the audition scene. That was when Peter and I did that scene and on the way to the car I said to Peter, I'll see you when we start shooting. And he said, you don't know that. And I said, yes, I do. I'll see you when we start shooting. He said, you don't know that. I said, yes, I do.
0: And, and you, because you felt yeah. that you had, and this was your first major role. Um, you had done some television. Well, I had done
1: years of theater, 20 and, years.
0: Right. But in terms of mass exposure, this was it. Yeah. And...
1: It's th- supposed to be three two-hour movies. And uh, they started to get the footage in and they called me in and said, you know, this is such good stuff, Nick. We're gonna cut it up into half-hour segments and call it a mini-series. And I said, well, why are you telling me? I can't do anything about that. And they said, that's right, Mm -mm, goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) That's how it started, mini-series started.
0: Right, and that's what basically catapulted you into a career, Absolutely. able to then go make movies like North Dallas Forty, was something that you read, felt passionate about, and you were the one who had to actually go out and yeah. get the financing and, and everything else. Yeah,
1: there was, there was, there was the deep in there, which was a made a lot of money and. Um, That and Carol Rice, who was my mentor and English director, he came to visit the deep, and that day I wasn't working much. We were doing a stunt on the side of a cliff, so I was hanging out with props, shooting foam at everybody and kind of having a good time when they introduced me to this English director. And uh, I knew I... I had really screwed up bad. So I said, well, it's a pleasure to meet you. And he said, do you know of uh, Dog Soldiers, Robert Stone's Dog Soldiers? I said, yes, I do. And he said, well, I'd like you to play Ray Hicks. And I said, well, I would love to do that. And he said, can I give you uh, a little critique now? And I said, sure. Before we even started the film, (laughs) he said, You don't entertain the crew as much as you do. You're wasting a lot of energy. (laughs) And I said, Good advice, I'll take that too. And
0: And I'm uh, sorry, I mean, you can imagine how many films we wanted to include in Who'll Stop the Rain, the film that Carol Rice directed you in based on Dog Soldiers. Turns out it's not available on DVD or Blu-ray, we tried. Wow. Could not get a hold of it, which is why it's not represented here tonight, but strongly recommended. Now, when I was reading your book, I, you're such a wonderful raconteur, as I just mentioned, and seem to have an extraordinary memory. So I have a couple of questions. First of all, how did you actually compose the book? Did you write, for example, in longhand? Did you dictate? Um, and did you have old notebooks or diaries in order to have that precision of recall? No, it's a good question. It's a good question. I I have
1: never, never liked the Hollywood form of a screen play, play, because it was formulated for a period of time when the script girl had to write in all the props that were used, what gestures were used, and all this. So uh, actress dialogue... Maybe you can get four words. Many times it's only three words. So I would throw that away. And then I would reformat the whole script. And in reformatting, I would put in my commentary, and my ideas, and this kind of thing. So it became a form of journaling. And this is how. And why I kept track of it. Because I would not only break down a script, I'd break it down into the beats, you know, of what I want as a character. And I'd get it through a through line through the whole thing. And then I would break it down into just dialogue only and eliminate all the action. And then I'd get it down to just lines only. And then that would just be my lines one after another and after another. And then I would get it down to words only. So if this character I was playing had a certain vocabulary, these are the only words I spoke for many, many months. Because I would sit in the tub and read these in the morning just to find the rhythm of how and what these words were. Um, So that became kind of the uh, idea, if I was wanting to change the whole way film was, the story of film was told, I was keeping a record of how I had changed it.
0: (laughs) Uh, Did um, some of the directors perhaps question? No. No?
1: No, no, Ang Lee thought it was a piece of art. because the Hulk is a cartoon in a way. So I would use cartoon fonts, and I would use different colors. And then I really tried to find, scientifically, some scientists that could explain how the immune system, if it was beefed up enough, how it could heal within three or four seconds. It would cause a tremendous death of, from free radicals breaking off, but you'd have to mop that up some way. There, there's a possibility of doing it, but it was highly skeptical.
0: You know, <laughs> By the way, I but wanted to include a clip from The Hulk. Um, yep. My husband, Mark, who does the clip reels, he, he, he felt there were more important films to include, but I thought The Hulk was not merely a very fine superhero movie, but given that it was Ang Lee directing it, um, it was also a love story. It had resonances that were mythic and philosophical, and I thought you did a fantastic job as the father of Eric Bana playing the Hulk, and the whole backstory where we realize that um, there murder- may have been a murderous, you know, backstory, a primal murder scene, and yeah. the mother died. It, it's so much richer than a lot of the other superhero movies.
1: Well, Angley, Angley, he wasn't making the Hulk. He, he wanted to get into every little detail of how, how this could possibly happen and why one would want to get into a position of power that way and power ultimately corrupting. So the early work with the, um, we're doing it now with CRISPR and genetics
0: We're isolating
1: dogs and making them. And and so uh, it's not far-fetched before we'll be into this kind of world. Now, it is a cartoon because the Hulk turns into something else. But the groundwork for this kind of genetic work is there. And um, let's just hope it's for better use than (laughs) sheer entertainment, you know.
0: Yeah. Now, we start off because I was asking about how you had the recall from all these movies. You also mentioned in the book that you were dyslexic. And that when you first were doing plays, you would compensate by writing out the dialogue of all of the characters in longhand.
1: Well, I found if if I was doing a Tennessee Williams play, I, I wanted to spend as much time with the words that he chose to make a sentence as Tennessee spent in finding the right words. So that meant I had to slow the reading process down so that I would contemplate which words he's choosing. And I found that if I wrote the play out longhand that the action of the feeling of the word would actually translate through my hand and, and into myself, and I, and I would think more about it. Um, I didn't do that for long because it, it's an arduous process, but it's, it's a very necessary uh, reason to, to take the dialogue or the screenplay or the play and slow it down to the slowest rhythm it can go to understand exactly what each character is saying and why they are saying it, and when you get it slowed down, you begin to see the lines of how it connects on through. And with a writer like Tennessee Williams, it's absolute poetry, and you understand that. But the same is true of Eugene Miller, uh, although they struggled to get their place on Broadway. Uh, Tennessee did not, uh, but. Um, I'm always looking for a way to change the basic process and looking for a way to make it pretty or unique or different or undecipherable. (laughs) I like to create puzzles that I can't solve because the screenplay can't be solved anyway. And if it ends in death, then it's an imitation of life. So usually when the characters live, it's an arbitrary ending. and you got to figure those out. Um, you know, there's an actor out there that did Ridiculous Six. We all did it. And uh, Ridiculous Six is the kind of story that keeps you on your feet because you've got to figure out how, how to how to play this and make it real for a moment, and then the humor comes. Uh, You know, maybe we tried too many gigs, but it it really worked that way. It does work that way. And um, uh, so it's it's a matter of, uh, in the memory of these pieces, that I've so altered them that they have stuck with me uh, in that way.
0: It's actually remarkable to me. I never would have known any of this from watching your work on screen. We also haven't had the chance to see much of you on stage. So it seems to me that you were kind of always a writer. I mean, that you always had a temperament that was attuned to words, to their rhythm, even though we associate you, I think, primarily with an intense physicality. Physicality, yeah. Um, In fact, David Thompson, uh, the great critic, Considered you the great elemental American actor. (laughs) He used that word, elemental. Mm -hmm. And in your early films, I mean, North Dallas 40, we showed one that was more dialogue, but you were a football player in school. Yeah, I was.
1: The thing about North Dallas 40 is you've got to remember that's before Players Union. That was, they could just kick you out anytime they wanted. If they didn't want to pay your salary, they didn't want to pay your salary. Um, and um, I had seen Jim Motto. But when I decided to do it, first of all, the NFL did not want that book written. So they resisted Pete Jett even writing the book. And then we inherited the task that they did not want it to be a film. Why? I don't know. Big corporations get scared about little logos. Um, I don't know why they got scared about it. But they, they were just resistant uh, to the idea that uh, maybe these players gave everything they gave, and they should be compensated for it, uh, but they weren't for a long time. Jim Otto couldn't walk, and when he day he retired, he couldn't get out of bed. You know, uh, so yeah. then football's going through a big change now. You know.
0: And you actually made another film later in your career that still now today has a resonance Blue Chips uh, directed yes. by William Friedkin which deals with basketball and the corrupt element of getting high school players <laughs> you know to sign with your pro yeah. team and that was another sort of prescient
1: yeah that's a that's a Billy Friedkin um, and Ron Shelton uh, threatened to pitched their tents in my front yard. And I said, but what are we gonna say? And you know, Ron wrote White Man Can't Jump. Uh, he wrote A Brilliant Thai Cop, which Tommy Lee Jones played, uh, but he has a tendency to make a little fun of the athletic part of life. And Billy, Billy, surprisingly, Chicago Jewish street Chicago kid and you don't want to get in a fight with Billy freaking I mean he'll just clean your clock uh I was nose to nose with Billy and I was the first one to break into tears you know <laughs> I said, oh my god have I ruined you I said no you haven't ruined me but you devastated me uh but it was all over a question of a little simple thing. Uh, He's very passionate and, and uh, he, he he was Bobby Knight's favorite guy and we ended up with Bobby Knight for about a month which sent Ron up a tree because Ron didn't see the picture being as serious as it was. What the problem is is yeah, they're going to recruit these kids from 11, 12 years old and the shoe companies are going to come in and they're going to give that family money. And then if that kid doesn't grow an inch, they're not going to give them any more money. And that's the problem. A lot of false hope. A lot of false dreams.
0: It's a cutthroat world. Yeah. Now, I'm going to move into something else because your book credits Brian O'Byrne. Um, mm-hmm. Brian O'Byrne? Brian O'Byrne. Brian okay. Yeah for engendering passion for acting, as well as commitment to the craft. And among your mentors, you also name one of my favorite people, the filmmaker Alan Rudolph, also the producer Mike Medavoy, who I told you were gonna be doing this tonight, he was very pleased. Um, I'm curious, who else inspired you, especially among actors? Um, And and by the way, one of the reasons I ask this is because the same David Thompson who called you the great elemental American actor said that you reminded him a bit of Robert Mitchum, (laughs) partly because of the ability to play both dumb and ruthless and charismatic and all of those.
1: Mitchum. Uh, You know, he Mitchum communicates so much in silences that he doesn't have to talk much. I remember a story Bob was telling me. This is on Cape Fear. Mitchell had done his first tape and with Martin Scorsese, you cannot smoke around because he's he's allergic to smoke, and there's a lot of signs. And Bob sat down on a chair and pulled out a Pall Mall, and he was telling me a story about uh, about. Uh, John Houston had promised him that if he would swim across this little swamp river, that they could save a half a day. It wouldn't have to use extras. And and Mitchum smoking cigarettes cigarette said, "I said to him, are there any snakes in there? No, oh, no, no snakes, no snakes. Any alligators? No, no alligators, and all that." And then as he's telling me this story. I get really enthused about him, so I said, you got another one of those balls?" He gives it to me, and I can see on the corner of my eye Joe Reedy is starting to turn red. But Marty is starting to creep closer and closer and closer to this conversation. And Mitchum finishes it, he said, well, I did get in the water for Houston, but the first thing I ran into was a water moccasin. And then I ran into an alligator and I got across the river and I said, I'll never work for you again. Not ever. And he said in four years, Houston was back and asking him to do a picture. He said, no, you tried to kill me last time. I'm not going to work with you. So, but what happened was that Marty wanted to hear this history very badly. And I have a picture of Marty's slowly getting closer and then he's sitting between us as we're smoking Paul Mall cigarettes. Now, that's the only time I've ever seen that done. <laughs> I don't think Marty will remember it, but th- that was Mitchum. Uh, it, 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 um, it was, there was something about his time, his mannerism, his way of being and his approach to acting, which he would never claim as acting, he never was an actor. And he said, now, if you want to see an actor, Gregory Peck is going to show up in a little while, and he's afraid of me. I don't know why, but he's afraid of me, and you'll see it. And Peck showed up with two little toy poodles, and he got so nervous, the poodles jump off. He said, see? And George C. Scott was that way, too. George would always pretend he was going to blow his top, but he wouldn't blow his top. And everybody would go, oh, you know. But, uh, in fact, that was an Alan Rudolph. No, it wasn't Alan Rudolph. Alan Rudolph I worked with once and fell in love with him. And... Something like seven pictures later, I said, I- I've got to go somewhere else. <laughs> yeah,
0: again, we're not going to include one of the clips, but I-, I strongly urge you to see Afterglow, which stars Nick Nolte and Julie Christie. Um, this was 1997, playing the older couple, and then there's a younger couple that have a lot to learn, yeah. I'll put it that way. Johnny Miller. Um, and uh, Julie Christie's character, Phyllis, um, has reason to be a bit depressed because her husband, Lucky, is a hunky handyman who <laughs> services the women while he fixes their plumbing. Um, <laughs> and, and yet... You it, can it's, reverse that, it, you It's know? a film that's both... Um, Comic and poignant. I mean, Alan Rudolph always captures these mixed tones. There's a bit of irony, and there's, and then you feel you love these characters, and then you continue to work with him. Breakfast of Champions. Yeah, I mean, is there's uh, something
1: I always got to add in here. This is Bob Altman and Alan Rudolph. Now these, these are not establishment guys. These are, these are, pranksters, tricksters. They made Welcome to LA, I think it was, something like that. And then they took it to LA and opened it as if a big studio was opening. They had only had enough money to open it. And they pretended it was a big opening. And everybody in town bought it and demanded that it show the next day and demanded it show. So they literally. Uh, bamboozled their way into filmmaking. And it was the genius of Altman. And Rudolph was his AD, but he knew that Alan was also a good writer. And he said, you've got to write and direct your own films. They can't just be me all the time. And so there you had this team. And Altman was the ultimate seductress. <laughs> he, would, he would stand and I'd be laying in the couch He would light up a joint and say, you know, Nick, um, you don't have to go see dailies. You've been looking at them for 20 years. Uh, He said, you know, I try to get my actors to see dailies, but I wait until an actor's really done a good job with something. And then I tell him to come and not anybody else. And when he sees that he's done good work, then I wait till another actor's done good work. Then I show those two scenes together with those two actors, and eventually I get the whole cast to come. And he said, that won't work with you. He said, the reason, let's go take a walk. And I'm going, oh, okay. So we're going to do a television show called The Gun. I think it's really going to be good, you know. We'll follow The Gun from murder to murder, not people. We'll follow the gun, which was apropos today. Um, so I said, well, we'll talk about that. He said, oh, we'll make millions of dollars. He said, but the thing with Alan is that he does something on his dailies that I don't think any other director in the world does. And I said, well, what's that, Mom? And he says, well, he plays music over every take. And I said, well, what? just stock?" He said, no, he has a a player that has thousands of songs. So anytime there's a silent shot, he won't let it run silent. He'll play a, a sad dirge over it, and it becomes very sad. Or he'll play a Mexican chihuahua song, and it becomes funny. He said, you really have to see this to see how it affects. And I went to the dailies and they became just really another level of things as Alan experimented with music in his film. And um, in fact, the film was made for one reason. This is the corrupt reason. They made film because they're filmmakers and love film. They made the film to get Julie Christie Back into the making of movies. And they wanted to get her an Academy Award nomination. So that's all right, that's fine, you know, that's great. Uh, the stories were great, the writing was great, and everything. And when it got time to push the film, they wrangled a deal with San Sebastian Film Festival and got her Best Actress. Well, Now I'm getting a little upset because we'd had dinners and all they'd talk about was Julie. So I called the head of the Fort Lauderdale Film Festival. And I said, you know, if I brought you an Alan Rudolph film with Julie Christie and myself, um, what could I expect? And he said, well, nothing. uh, But I imagine you're... Wildest dreams would come true. And I said, okay, I'll bring the film down. So I won Best Actor. (laughs) And that night, there was... uh, Oh, boy. There was Casavetti's gal. uh, Jenna Rowland? Yeah, Jenna. And Ben Gazar were sitting out in the audience. And I I saw them. And Jenna and, and, um, and her husband had come to the Mayflower once to talk to me, but they were at the bar, and I was at the end of the bar, and I never got the courage up to go talk to them. So I didn't do that, and I wanted to go tell Jenna that I was sorry that I didn't get over and talk to them. So as I went down to that table, I said, Jenna, years ago, you and... uh, um, Cazavettis were at the bar at Mayflower. She said, I remember it well. And I said, Ben, you know, I stood down at the end of the bar and I never went and talked to him. I should have gone and talked to him. And she said, oh, honey, Nick, really? I said, yeah. I mean, it was stupid of me. And she said, no, honey, we went to four of the bars. We were out till five in the morning and we dropped you off back at the Mayflower. <laughs> With that, Ben fell over backwards in the chair, (laughs) just laughing, because he knew the deal. (laughs) That's kind of the way it is with some of the filmmakers, you know, that are intimate like that. Well,
0: you've just mentioned, I mean, Cassavetes is, for me, one of the towering heroes and Jenna Rowland's possibly the greatest living actress of her generation. much as I want to continue with some of these stories, we have prepared a few clips from the films that you then made after the point we left off. And I would love for you to see, You're going to, first of all, uh, a, a, a Beverly Hills movie, co-starring Bette Midler. You're going to see a piece of a New York drama alongside Timothy Hutton, and then um, two short clips Um, from the uh, films for which Nick Nolte received Academy Award nominations. uh, Prince of Tides, alongside Barbara Streisand, and a clip from Paul Schrader's Affliction with James Coburn and Sissy Spacek. We're going to take a look at these right now. I guess I'll angle my chair this way. (laughs) Um, I mean, there was a time there that you became a kind of embodiment of anguish. I mean, of a certain kind of American male whose pent-up violence was just bound to come out in one form or another, and it's, it's curious for me to see that the way the repression in The Prince of Tides is then slowly brought out through the psychiatrist character played by Streisand, but in Affliction, Um, the horrific nature of sort of father-son abuse and tension, the way that it's almost like Greek tragedy, you know, when when the cursed house where the sins of the father are visited upon the sons. I mean, affliction was a real contemporary example of that. Um, Since those are the last two clips, you were directed consecutively, it seems, by, uh, well, by Sidney Lumet in Q and A, the clip that we saw from, uh, with, with Timothy Hutton, and then Streisand in Prince of Tides. Two New York directors, but very different animals. <laughs> and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the difference in being directed by Sidney Lumet, who is so associated with New York rhythms and streets and where you played this Irish cop, Versus Streisand and what the Prince of Tides meant in terms of your career? Well,
1: they're, 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 one's a male, one's a female, Uh, but they're both the same. They're creative artists that want to tell a story. In Sydney, It's a long history of professionalism that he expects you to achieve a certain amount in the rehearsal period because when he shoots, you're only going to get one take, maybe two. If you've really got something to say, you can ask for another one, but you better do have something left. Uh, Because he doesn't want to waste time. Uh, To him, time is drama, is humor. And it's all about that first-timing energy. Uh, Streisand is more about perfection and coming to a realization, emotionally and mentally, about what the scene was about. Sidney has already figured it out. Uh, His best films are New York based and about authoritarian uh, uh, power and misuse. Uh, Judge Torres was his writer, so he had had a very uh, strong element there. um uh, this Q&A was a difficult piece to do because the nature of it was so rogue that even the, the best in New York didn't want to talk about it. So this kind of a rogue cop did exist, but nobody wanted to identify it or say, who it was, and nobody had a right to ask who it was, but uh, probably the worst crimes are committed by those that can do it uh, and get away with it. Um, um, that film is Marlon Brando's favorite film Q and A yeah. He wouldn't go on vacation without Q&A. Not my performance, but all the performances. Louis, um, the black actor, um, Amanda santi He just saw that as... as uh, because Sidney had boiled it down to the simplest of the story. And it was dark. It was very dark. He would always ask me... Um, Did you really go down the front of his, or whoever it was, pants, and feel what bits were there? And I said, yeah, Marlon, that's what you do. And he said, well, what was there? I said, well, they were transvestites. So their bits were tied up, you know, up behind them. And you'd feel for that. He said, geez, man. He he just... uh, Marlon didn't like killing. Marlon wouldn't have any part of. He wouldn't even shoot uh, to eat, you know. So, if you look at his body of work, you don't see him doing, you know, you know, things like that. Um, And then he was fascinated how um, how could you get to such a dark place. and I said, come on, Marlon, I mean, this is the first time I met him, he takes me outside the restaurant and is asking me these questions. And I don't know whether he's putting me on or whether he's being truthful about it. And I said, come on, you're 21, you're doing Streetcar Named Desire. And the stories are that in rehearsals, you never spoke up loud enough for any of the other actors to hear you. So they were terrified that you wouldn't be there, but you let out one Stella in some dress rehearsal. And they oh, we're going to be all right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and then with Prince of Tides, it was Barbara. She doesn't know this, but I was doing Q&A at the time. And I had six-inch lifts on that I had tilted them so that my balance was forward. So anytime I was talking to somebody, I was right in their face, and that had to be compensated for by the camera. If I stood up straight, I fell over backwards, and and it really made a big difference because. That made me taller than Timmy Hutton, who was about six foot two and uh, uh, and then pulling that mustache down over his lips you couldn't you couldn't see where the words you couldn't see the words but you could feel the breath and it, it was a lot about we're talking about killing here in a kind of very bizarre way. Um, uh, but it was, it, it was a tremendously effective film because the film was also about racism, about uh, dislike and um, and prejudice and, and and all this stuff. Uh, uh, it wasn't very complex. But then in Barbara's film, Prince of Tides, that had been optioned by Redford and. If you read Pat Conroy's Prince of Tides you might be inclined to think that the story is about the two brothers that the one that resists uh, has a bad experience in Vietnam and wants to blow up that that nuclear station down there that that's where your story would lie. It was Barbara that flushed out the love story about four women and and this, this man and that and Barbara is in love with love. She wants to, she wants to figure that out. Uh, more so than anybody I've ever known. Uh, and uh, I said, well, it's not in Prince of Tithes because at the end in Prince of Tides, Tom Wingo is asking for another love. Why can't we have two loves in our life? In fact, we have many loves in her life, but we just don't tell each other because we're human and we get a little upset if there's too much attention not paid to us. We have egos and things. But when you really get down to it, the next film she does with Jeff Bridges.
0: Uh, The Mirror Has Two Faces.
1: Yeah. That's the one she explores. Can romantic love survive? past, you know, its short period of nature's attraction to get reproduction going. Uh, Sure, love can survive. But it's a different kind of love than what we're defining as love now. Love is going to have to survive if we as humans are going to survive. We're going to have to learn to love all people, love our enemies as well as our friends. And until we can get that on a broader base, we're we're going to be in this this relationship kind of thing that's on and off and on and off. Uh, I'm not wise enough or spiritual enough to be able to hold that ground for very long. But I know a few people that can do that, you know. And I, I think that's in our evolutionary case. Uh, certainly more competition is not uh, we are competitive and, and, um, but we've evolved to a certain degree and then the last film which was that?
0: Um, affliction oh, okay.
1: well Affliction you know Paul gave me the script I read it and I said oh I gotta make this and then I read Russell Banks book and I had to call Paul and I said Paul, I can't do affliction now. I don't quite understand what I'm dealing with. Uh, I've just finished the book. I know you want to start in a couple of months and you've raised the money, but I don't understand it. I don't understand the depth of what affliction is. What does it mean? Affliction is biblical. It goes all the way back it's something we're born with, but somehow we don't know it. And because we don't know it, we don't teach it. And we're talking about love. It's the male side of on the planet hasn't learned how to pass that on to son, father to son, and son to his son. The, female side has because they have to birth and a nurture is kicked off and I'm sure there is on a male side but we don't keep the intensity up Uh, so Russell says since the beginning of time men have raised their sons in caves and they have yet to speak the words I love you and until that's done, we will be cursed with this affliction. Hmm. And that's what's going on between the father and that son. Because the father is a. Affli- Paul Newman turned the role down. I offered it to Paul. He said a very interesting thing. He said, Nick, I don't think my audience would accept me in this role. And I thought, well, that's a strange thing to say. But when you think about it, what Paul is saying is that, number one, he doesn't want to go to that place. And number two, he's evolved past that place. Uh, and therefore, he wouldn't be able to, to touch it. Whereas Jimmy Coburn was quite willing to go there. He was. You know, the right actor, whoever it is, usually shows up in the right role at the right time and it works. If they don't show up, then it probably won't work.
0: And you were the one who went to James Coburn. it was your idea to cast him? Well,
1: after Paul said no to it, um, you know, I had wanted Paul to do it because I wanted to work with Paul. I had turned a film down about a cowboy that has to transport five prostitutes. Across from one town to another in a wagon, I said, "Paul, I don't understand this story." He said, "That's the same thing Redford said. <laughs> it, it, it's right in the description. If you're gonna move five prostitutes by wagon, you're gonna be in a, a real pickle, aren't you? You know, so I should have trusted it, knew that Paul would figure it out, uh, but." I knew him casually. I knew enough to talk to him, and I, and 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 he gave me a real strong reason why he shouldn't do affliction. And Coburn, Jimmy was ready for it because Jimmy, you know, had done Armend Flint, He had he had an audience, and then Jimmy was afflicted with uh, uh, arthritis so badly that his hands were locked into positions. And a character actor a friend of his went by and said, "Jimmy, what are you doing? I mean, your, your body's going to be all twisted up." And he said, "I know, but I don't know what, what what's going on here." He said, "Well, look, I'm going to work on you every day." And this actor worked on his hands for eight hours a day, both his hands, until he got it all back, pretty much, you know. And then, then of course, he found MSN, but. Uh, it was really that actor working those muscles and freeing them up from the inflammation that he had.
0: And of course, James Coburn won the Academy Award for yeah. Supporting Actor for Affliction. And, and, and you were nominated.
1: Rudolph called me right during the Academy Awards. There were, my phone's going because Bob and Alan know everything. So I take a chance on a commercial. Yeah. <laughs> If they win Best Supporting Actor, you will win Best Actor. (laughs) It's the history of the (laughs) awards. So I said,
0: okay, okay.
1: You
0: lost lost to... Oh, I lost
1: to Anthony Hopkins. Not a bad loss.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you know. Okay.
1: Anthony had been around for years and taking his lumps. You know, he had to always follow, uh, you know... Uh, all those great English guys. I mean, the English—they do have a good thing on on their repertory theater way that they move through and do the repertory theater and work their way back to London. So they do have a period of time that they know each other really well. We don't have that in America. Um, You know, we have good universities, we have summer stock, we have, there's plenty of theater going on to get any kind of base you want, but to get a group of fellows that have spent time together, we don't quite have that anymore. We used to.
0: We're going to show just a few more clips because, well, first of all, there's one from a uh, a World War II film in uh, which you play the scene with John Cusack. You'll recognize it in a moment. And then a post-Vietnam War movie about a Vietnam, Vietnamese youth who is seeking in Texas the father he never knew and who is now blind. You'll see. It's one of my favorite films of the past 20 years, and we'll talk more about it afterwards. And then finally, two scenes from another remarkable film, Warrior, where you as the father have one, son, uh, one scene with your son played by Tom Hardy and the other with Joel Edgerton in, um, I, I won't say more about it, but it, it's very much an elaboration of the same theme that we're yeah. talking about of affliction and father-son tension. And finally, we're ending with a cliff, a much more peaceful coda with uh, Robert Redford. <laughs> so uh, Cliff, the third reel. <laughs> Well, I know that some of you have never heard of The Beautiful Country, some of you probably don't even know Warrior, though it was the third Academy Award nomination for you, in the, at least in the Best Supporting Actor category, and we don't have time to go into all the reasons why these are such great films. So before we take a few questions from the audience, I am going to ask you, because you write in the book, the roles I play stay with me. They become encoded into me, so I'm curious which of them the most, not necessarily the ones whose clips we've seen, I mean, look, among my own favorites of the Nick Nolte career would be Under Fire, The Beautiful Country, Afterglow, and Off the Black, which we couldn't include, first feature by James Ponsold, a former student of mine, I would add, that also has father-son tensions, Mm. but which are the ones that you can't quite get rid of? Well,
1: you you can't get rid of any of them, really, you know. Uh, When you go into a film, you think this is the best piece you've got, you're working on. And that's why you can't make choices over and say, well, this one was greater than this one this one. There's always some story element that is pursuing you and you're pursuing it. Uh, The reason they become part of you is because you are part of the story. Um, This art doesn't come without an artist. It's like a painter puts himself on the canvas. Now it's just the degree and the way you can paint the pictures that makes it different stories. In fact, the, the actor has helped tremendously in that the stories have differences. And then they can pull on different parts of themselves. Many times it's about elimination. Eliminating some parts of your personality that um, I don't think I could ever be as serious as, as uh, Q&A. You know, I can never get to that part of that that darkness Um, neither could I be as uh, funny as down and out in Beverly Hills because uh, I don't want to sleep outside (laughs) I've tried that and I got poison oak all over myself in fact that's what worked because Bette wouldn't believe I was the bum so I had poison oak covering my body in big welts And I had gone home for one night and slept with my wife, and she had it all over her. And so I would go to work about 5 in the morning. My makeup man, Eddie Henriquez, would soak muslin in a big garbage can, and I'd be down to my jockey shorts, and he'd lay these over these big pustule welts. And Bette happened to drive in at that time and saw this. And she freaked out. She called Jeffrey Katzenberg and said, Is it contagious? Is he, is he diseased? That disease? I can't work with that. I can't possibly. And man, I had her. I had her. From then on, I was the bum.
0: But it was a kind of method acting because to play a homeless guy, you did the homeless thing. And if I, if I read correctly, you ate. The dog food?
1: Yes, well, the dog. You know, you can't trust these trainers. The dog was a vegetarian. So I had spent months looking at puppy chows that was gourmet enough to be as good as Diddy Morse stew, which isn't saying much, but I mean, so... When the cans went in at the last second, the dinty more went, the dog food went, and the guy poured it in the little peas and corn. Well, that's what the dog ate. I had to eat the dog food, <laughs> you know. So I, you know, I, I thought that's that's not right. I, but it's apropos, you know. Beth didn't want to talk to me. <laughs> you you ate the dog
0: food, I mean, you know.
1: Yeah, you
0: know. Now, I have about 20 more questions that I will not get to ask. We do want to take a few questions from the audience before the book signing begins. If we could raise the lights just a little bit um, so that I can see hands as they go up. I see one right over there and another, the gentleman there. So we'll start on this side before I move here. You obviously have a comedic career as part of the direction oh. of your work. Two you started the interview stating you have dyslexia, and I wondered how that impacted or formulated your um, ability to memorize and act. Uh, well, the question I raised in sure. the book, it's, it, you mentioned that you had dyslexia. Mm-hmm. How did that impact your ability mm-hmm. to act?
1: See, it's a, it's a very good benefit to have. Uh, It turns out in your favor like gangbusters. Um, uh, I would be surprised to find many actors that don't have it. I find more actors are dyslexic. And that just means that your eyes do not want to go left to right and down. It means that you may have a natural way of your eye movement. So you have to train yourself to do this. In doing that, that means you're going to spend more time on the script, you're going to spend more time in comprehension, and you're going to pay much more detail to it. So the deficit becomes a benefit. And I have found this um, ADD, hyperactive, you know, you could sit with a comedian and you go, oh, geez, this guy, is, he can't stop, you know. Robin Williams, you know. Robin Williams and I spent eight hours in a bathtub at Sue Menger's house. Of course, we were doing things we shouldn't be doing, but we were behind the shower curtain. And as the women and actresses would come in and talk about which one of us would be best in bed. And Robin would start to go and I'd say, No, you can't go, you can't you know. And that's the amount of time I hung out with Robin Williams was eight hours. And I consider I had a closer bond with Robin than many people I've known for years. Just the conditions of us being in that bathtub. (laughs) And why we climbed into the bathtub. You know, we both had something illegal that we weren't supposed to have and so we wanted to share it, but then we were stuck in the tub, you know, and um, it was a a tremendous night. I mean, that was the genius of Sue Mingers. She used to have a party every Friday night, and she would invite specific actors and directors and producers to put them together. And um, that's, that, that. Nobody does that today that I know.
0: And in case the name is not familiar, she was called the super agent. Yeah. She represented Nick Nolte and Barbara Streisand and a, a whole roster of celebrities, famous actors at yeah. that time. Gentlemen, there. He said, I'm a huge Pat Conroy fan. Prince of Tides, one of my favorite books. Is there anything more you could share with us about the making of Prince of Tides?
1: Yes. Yes. And your yes.
0: relationship with the writer, Pat yes, Conroy. Yes,
1: absolutely. Uh, I, I was lucky enough to, uh, to have lived in West Virginia. And if you live in West Virginia, you're soon going to get crazy because you can't see anything because of dense woods so West Virginians break out by going to the Carolinas and so I had uh, I I had a house on Holden Beach which is just above Wilmington and um, I knew that I had read Pat Conroy's book and I knew that he lived on this beach and I knew that he taught at the high school and I knew that he went shrimping So that's what I did. I went to the local high school and asked them if I could teach a class uh, on acting or if they wanted about film, and then could I do that for a couple of months in the summer, and they said, absolutely. Then I went and talked to the shrimpers, and I said, can I go out with you guys? And they said, absolutely, so I went out with them. And then after I got those experiences going, I talked to Pat about going down to Beaufort, and he said, if you go to Beaufort, you're going to find it like in the book. only oh, except they're not going to be exactly in the same spot. You will find the crazy man. You will find this and this and this. And then he said, uh, uh, just get the lifestyle down there. And later on, that family would call me Tom Wingo after the film came up. That would call me Tom. Uh, he was a great writer, great writer, and he was totally open with me on you know anything I needed to do. And, and uh,
0: if I understand correctly, you really wanted that part, and you pursued that part. It's not that they were coming for you.
1: Look, Barbara, <laughs> you know she's crafty. So uh, you can't, uh, if you want something and they read it, you're not going to get it. Uh, It's just kind of a game. If you want it, but they can't see that you want it, then you're probably going to get it. (laughs) And if you keep it limited to, to that role, that work, and don't throw in any oddities, They have no way to rule you out. So she had met most of the leading men by the time she got to me. And she went about it in a very unique way. Uh, The uh, assistant director for Sidney Lumet asked me one day if I had read Prince of Tides, Pat Conroy's book. And I said, no, I hadn't. He said, "Uh, hey, you can have my copy, I got a copy. So he gives me his copy. And he said, you should read that. You should read that now. So I, I knew something was going on. So I went home and started reading right away. And of course, then you're hooked. You, you know, you're gone, because Pat's a great writer. So I finished the book, and it took me about three, four weeks. And so I said uh, to this I said, is there anything past the Pat Pat Conroy book?" And he said, yes, yes, there's a script. And I said, who's it by? He said, don't know. Don't know anything else? No. But you should read the script. So I took the script home I read it. And it was good. Really good. It it limited it down. it pulled out the two brother relationship. You knew that it existed, but it focused on the sister and her suicide and the mother's relationship and uh, with his wife and with Lowenstein. So then I said to him after I read that, I said, this is a very good script. This is a very good script. And I said, is there something more? And he said, yeah. After work today, go home and in an hour after work, go to this address, uh, uptown, and you'll go meet Miss Streisand, and you might have something to eat there, just to drink. You know, she wants to say hello. So I said, you know, okay, I will. <laughs> I didn't want to bring it up with him that I was six foot five and had black hair and and that whole thing, so I I just took the shoes off and I had black hair. To this day, she doesn't believe I had black hair. She doesn't believe I had a mustache. The only thing she will say about it is that she poured me a glass of red wine and I wouldn't sit down, I just stood with the wine and she had all white carpeting. She was so frightened that I was going to spill that one <laughs> that that's all she remembers from the interview. And from there it went on and her process is, well, let's do a few scenes and I'll videotape them. And then I have versions of that scene. So I said, okay, well, I've got to make a commitment here someplace. Yes, yes, she'll have an offer. So because she would have maybe seven versions of a scene, and she couldn't make up her mind what she liked best. So she said, "We'll shoot all seven. And I was like, "Oh boy, this is this is going to be a lifetime."
0: Job. And this is the exact opposite of Sidney Lumet, which we yeah, were working at the time. exact
1: opposite, you know, and. Uh, So we went into production with many of of those things, with many scenes. Now, what actually happened is it doesn't work that way. When you're working, all the energy and everything drives to that one take, and then it's dissipated and gone. You can't go back and start it up again. So luckily, you don't do versions, you know, um, she didn't do that. Uh, there, We don't agree uh, totally on the film. She thinks that um, I and the actress that played the mother, uh, Kate, uh, with, uh, she was so good. Um, oh, I can't remember her name. The day we did that scene, she and I were so prepared that it just flew. And it glued the crew and it glued Barbara and she had no comment about it. But to this day she thinks that the mother was not complicit in any of the abuse the children took. And I feel opposite. I, yes, it was the father that beat the children. But the mother could have stopped it. She could have walked away. Yes, it's a harder thing to do, but that's why we're all guilty in a way. When you talk about affliction or something, there are things that could be done. So she would reshoot that scene. That's the only one hmm. she would. Uh, and I, 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 don't, I can't really argue with her. I do understand that. But then, why is the scene in in the in the film? I mean, it's in the book, and and Pat. Does say that the, the mother, you know, was the allowed it to go on.
0: Uh, we have time. there is someone all the way in the back. No, they, are, you sorry, uh, there are, are there roles that you didn't take that you're sorry you didn't? are there roles you did, there roles
1: that you're happy
0: you passed them? Are there roles that you are sorry you did not accept? or other roles that you're glad you passed on?
1: No. Well, I'm glad I told them that Superman was psychotic. (laughs) uh, That he was truly a schizophrenic. And that (laughs) if they offered it to me, I would consider that very heavily in his psychology. Um, I did not want to play a superhero. Um, That's the only one I can think of that I made any kind of... Uh, Fuss about. Um, No, there was never anything offered to me uh, that I turned down that I wish I hadn't. And there wasn't anything that I didn't take that I wish I had. I can't think of one.
0: Okay, right here, that'll be the last question. When you were making 48 Hours and another 48 Hours, did you have any particularly funny interactions off screen with Eddie Murphy?
1: What you're asking about is you're asking about a real special genius individual, Eddie Murphy. He is, uh, I don't know how to describe him because his talent is so immense and so clear. Uh, that most people can't talk to him they just uh, and I don't have that problem Uh, even to this day if he's got 50 bodyguards around him they can't see me for some reason and I can jump up in the air and tap him on the head and he knows right away who did that and he just goes into his laugh (laughs) you know um he he um, he's just very very special uh and he has no uh, isms at all none whatsoever i uh, uh, i wish i wish in a way that uh he didn't have it so well so that we'd see more of him you know that he'd he would he would be forced into telling more stories um 48 Hours 2 was a mistake, but uh, yeah, by then, everybody was copying that floor mat, lethal weapon and everything, and so Walter and I felt, wow, we should get to do our own thing. And uh, I had come up with a real good story for it, but Walter and Eddie looked like me, at me like I was crazy. Ah, I, I thought that, you know, would twist the thing. Eddie's getting out of prison and the cops have busted me because of and because of me running around with Eddie and all of that. So they they have taken my job away and I've turned into an alcoholic. And so now Eddie's gotta pick me up and find out who implanted the information. So that the cops brought me down. And in that process, we run into two Chinese twins, females. And then that sparks up the old issues of is Yang Li, Young Li or Yang Li? Is it my girlfriend or your girlfriend? And we could have started another round of the racial issues. You know, which are really great issues because they're real and we have to bring them in the open and we've got to make them funny. And they have to be laughed at because that's the only way you can release all the tension out of it. And Eddie knew that. Uh, I used to try to get Eddie to go with a song for Jack Cates, and I would sing this song and I'd go, Ooh, woo, woo, I'm a lonely frog. I ain't got no home. That's probably a 1954 rock and roll song by Clarence Frogman Henry. There you go. Never heard that. Never heard that. <laughs> you know? I mean, but he was, he, was he, he he could just throw anything at Eddie and, and play with it. Now, he was not a guy that was, uh... Approachable? None at all. You had to know the right keys to approach him. He was—he's uh, very wealthy. Was very wealthy. Well-brought-up boy, and he didn't know from the South Side or anything, you know. But he could make fun of it. He could do it as comedy, and he did it in stand-up. But, I, 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 you know, some, some comedians are compelled to go to the very end, and some are not. And, uh, uh, it, it, we were lucky to get the brilliance of Eddie when he, when he was around. I mean, you know, it, it, here's a guy. It, he tells me that, all right, Paramount's offered me a six-picture deal for $24 million. Is that a good deal? I said, well, you know, I'm not going to tell you to turn down $24 million. You know, you're only, what, 1920 20 now? Uh, you know, I can't tell you that. But I can tell you this. If you stay independent, you probably can make $24 million. But you'll have to find writers to write the story you want to tell. And then you can find them at Columbia or you can find them at Universal or you can can use anybody you want. But if you sign that deal with Paramount, you're going to have maybe six, seven writers, four or five producers, and three or four directors. And there's a likelihood you're going to get into repetition. And that's what happened. Beverly Hills cops, you know. And, and see, the studios, they don't have the patience and the times to wait for an actor to mature or change. John Travolta wanted to change what he was doing. But what was popular were the things he was doing. But he, so he went around to James Cagney, he talked to me, and I said, well, John, have you ever considered not working for three years? Oh, no, I can't do that. I can't not work for three years. Well, how are you going to change if life is not going to have its effect on you? You know, in three years you're going to know a lot more than you know now. Save it and then use it. But you know, once you're in the public eye, this is this whole thing about fame and being known and uh, and the conditions that you're going to have to deal with a situation like that, and then the talent enters into it. So Eddie Murphy was an extremely talented guy, and I did not want to go on Saturday Night Live with Eddie Murphy. I would be in the bathroom while he was on, and that's, that's why I skipped it, you know. And they said, well, Eddie's buddy is puking in the toilet, you know? <laughs> so Eddie will be running the show
0: tonight. Well. Your book is called Rebel, My Life Outside the Lines. And it's fairly clear, even to those people in the audience who haven't seen all your work, that your career has been unique. You have not been, you know, going the mainstream route. You've done so many of the independent films that many never even heard of. But that clearly not only helped you perfect your craft, but clearly put you in touch with human emotions, needs, fears, I mean, looking at your films the way Mark and I have been doing over the past two weeks, there's a kind of internal landscape of the American male moving through various decades and generations. At one point in the book, you actually mention acting as a method of studying the human soul. Wow! And that's, I mean, it comes through in the book, but boy, does it come through in your work. And I was very gratified because we haven't talked about this. You've been through a lot in your life. You've overcome various addictions, and you are still working. I mean, we didn't even mention the TV series Graves, which is the most recent. Mm. But towards the end of the book, you, you mentioned chanting your gratitude for everything that you have.
1: Well, absolutely, and I think we all do that. I mean, all of our lives are very unique, and you're sitting in the middle your life and that's what you utilize every day and, you know, that's all that acting is. Uh, Marlon said a long time ago, everybody is an actor and and they are to, to a certain degree. I mean, it's not that we don't take life seriously. We take life seriously that we can feed the stories back to an audience. But your life is informing a lot of people, too, now. Just your presence is the formation of it. And your consciousness is a consciousness that knows your life. It's too bad we can't be in everybody's consciousness, but
0: we can't do it. But I think that one of the reasons that we go to movies, as much as we do, it's not just the stories. It's sometimes yeah. being touched yeah. by an individual face, voice, sensibility, and we realize that part of us is responding to that. We, we see some kind of mirror, even if we don't look physically like that person. So as long as you mention the word gratitude in your book, I'll end, before we move over to the book signing, um, by how much gratitude we feel tonight that you have shared so much with us. Okay. Thank you very, very much. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes
1: and find more great conversations at 92Yondemand.org.